Today's episode of Hoops Adjacent is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at Salvation Army USA. And welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I am David Aldridge in D.C. We're still locked down, as is 90% of the country. With me in L.A., my man, Waz Lambre. Waz, how are you, sir? Man, I just wish I was in the heartland where people have immunity to the virus. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Where can we where can we get that elixir, right? <laughs> Man, well, I gotta I gotta be perfectly honest. We were we were thinking about doing a different show last week. You know, when we were talking about this week's show, we were like, well, we should do this, we should do that. And then we got overrun as a, as everybody did um by the last dance. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I knew we all knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Um, but I was, I was blown away by both the impact, uh, that it seemed to have in the basketball community and the basketball world and the ratings that it got on ESPN are just phenomenal. And so we said, Hey, we got to do this. This is the show we have to do. We have to talk about everything that's going on. And, and I, there was only, there were really just two people I wanted to talk to and we got both of them. I'm, I'm thrilled um, that we were able to get both of them because these are two people that I've known for a long time, respected both of them immensely. Um, and they can give us both, I think, the, the micro and the macro. Um, uh, one person who covered the team day in and day out for years and the other person who was covering the league and could and, and would you know, come in and, and do big pieces, big thought pieces about the Bulls and Michael Jordan during those times. And two two great writers. Uh, let me start with Melissa Isaacson, um, who covered the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune for almost all of the uh, six titles in eight years as the beat writer, but was there for all six of the titles and uh, her capacity with the Tribune. She now works at the Medill School at uh, Northwestern University. I normally hate Northwestern, but you're one of the few people I like. <laughs> I hated them too before I came. Now I love them. Now you and Jay Adande are the two people I like from no- who work at Northwestern. So <laughs> I've known Missy for a long time. And she has also an incredible book out now. It's called State. And it is about her her experiences in I want to say now I don't want to date you, but her yes. experiences uh, <laughs> as one of the first uh, group of w- young women post Title IX um, to play uh, organized team sports to play basketball for her um, state team that wound up and this is a great an incredible story beating a team whose star player was someone we like to call Jackie Joyner Kersey wow. <laughs> for the state championship, <laughs> um, really coming out of nowhere. And it's really, it's not just about the season. It's not one of those, you know, season inside books, although there's a lot about the games. It's really about these, these young women all kind of coming of age in an era where women were not encouraged to, you know, be athletic or to, to try and play sports. And these were some of the first women that did it and did it successfully and did it at a high level. So I highly recommend uh, people bring in uh, who, who want to read about a great, uh, great and, un, and unusual time 
uh, where things were really starting to take off for women in sports is called State by Melissa Isaacson, and she was on that team. And our other guest this week is the one and only Jack McCallum, the legendary writer from Sports Illustrated who was the national NBA guy for so many years, covered Jordan at his height, covered the Dream Team in Barcelona, wrote, has written many books about uh, basketball, uh, including about the, the Dream Team. I think it's called Dream Team, I think, right, Jack? So, um, and he wrote a great book a couple of years ago about the the Warriors and the, and the conceit of it, which was so smart, was that Jerry West, who was the GM of the time, was involved not only with the Warriors team that broke the all-time NBA record for victories in the season, but was also obviously on the Laker team in 1972 that went 69-13 and 13 and won the NBA championship then and, and really had, was the standard for greatness until the Bulls came along and won 72 uh, in 1996. So thank you both for coming. I really appreciate you all spending some time with us. Thank Our you. Pleasure. So I have no particular agenda here or, or questions, but I just, I guess <laughs> I would ask both of you what you thought of the first two episodes. Why don't we start with Jack and then we'll get Melissa. Well, I, I think it's probably something you, you think about when you get to be my age, which is it's incredible how much you forgot. Right. <laughs> you know, right. That, that's the first thing. Actually, with all that I covered, uh, Michael, over the years, I had and it's almost fortunate for the documentary because I can look at it with fresh eyes. I happen not to be covering those years simply because when uh, Bird had left, Magic had left and Michael says he's leaving. And Jack McCallum said to himself, why don't I leave for a week? <laughs> this just isn't going to be as interesting. Right. And that that uh, leaving did not attract quite as much attention as Michael's did. So I, I was uh, away editing Scorecard and doing some other stuff at Sports Illustrated during that time. So that is my first impression that I was able to really go at this with fresh eyes, certainly remember the boundaries roughly of what happened. But, uh, you know, being able to look at it was kind of forgetting a lot of what happened. I was I was very impressed. Uh, I thought it was really, uh, really a great show. And I understood furthermore that it had done something to kind of unite us, as I put in my Sports Illustrated blog, in a way that we hadn't since the Beatles came on. I'm old enough to remember the Beatles coming on. Ed Sullivan in 1964, right. it was one of those cataclysmic moments that we all talked about. But back then, it was because it was only three channels. Mm -hmm. And this time, because uh, it was such an unusual time when sports had stopped. So that was my first impression of the uh, first two episodes. Missy, what did you think? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you talked about it was maybe a little bit of a surprise how huge it was. Not here because, uh, yeah, I'm still in the Chicago area. It's been a slow build for a year. It has been, I mean, so much anticipation. And I maybe I was a tad jaded. Um, I knew it would be good. I could tell from, you know, just how the director was working. It was going to be great. But, you know, you think like, oh, I kind of know the story. It'll be fun to watch. Uh, but I was glued to the first two episodes. I thought it was wonderful. And, you know, I, my kids, I mean, my daughter is not necessarily a big basketball fan. She loved it. Um, my, my son, you know, the kids I teach weren't around then. And so you think like they're going to be as excited about it as we are. 
and they're like, oh yeah, Michael Jordan. But I mean, they are so into it and, and could see right away how what we are talking about was actually not an exaggeration, unlike most of what we talk about, um, that, you know, it really was quite amazing. And I did, like Jack said, you are like, wow, we are sort of old, aren't we? Because, you know, the film looks a little old, yeah. it's a little bit rainy, and you're like, really? It's not like, HD. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the graphics. I mean, someone was like, oh, the graphics. I'm like, oh, stop it, you know. But um, no, it was it was so well done. And I was like on a couple of chats, which I'm not good at multitasking. So I, I was like annoyed that my attention was pulled even the slightest bit. That's how much I wanted to just watch every bit and not miss a thing. And I'm excited for Sunday. I think it's just great documentary filmmaking. Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Who Comma is on the Athletic Podcast Network. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs like the bullshit and braggadocio. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. David Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing him. Yes. <laughs> And then it had their lungs out in front of everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. So the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo in Iowa. Welcome to Hoop 4. We have ignition. Obviously, we are in a difficult time in our country. Uh, There's a lot of things that we are missing, sports being one of them. Uh, But one thing that we're trying to do here at at The Athletic is do the best we can to keep engaging our readers and our subscribers and try to uh, encourage people who haven't subscribed to give us a look. And that's why we are offering a 90-day free trial to The Athletic where you can join up and take a look at us and see what you like. Uh, we're doing a lot of NFL draft stuff this week. If you like drafts, then you're going to like Dame Brugler, who does The Beast every year. It's literally like a war and peace level book about the NFL draft. Or if you like baseball, then Joe Piznanski just wrote a quarter of a million words about the 100 best players in his view in baseball history. Or read me. You know, I just wrote a great piece about the Japan B-League and being a cautionary tale for the NBA as it thinks about restarting the league uh, sometime this summer. If you don't want to read me, you can read Sam Amick. You can read Michael Lee. You can read Ethan Strauss, who's got a great new book out. Uh, There's so many people writing about the NBA on a high, high level every day in The Athletic. It's home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very strange times, we all are still at work trying to do unique storytelling and doing excellent reporting. It's during times like these that The Athletic can keep you connected to the teams, the athletes, and the sports you love. So sign up now for that 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash hoops adjacent. That's theathletic.com forward slash hoops Hoops adjacent. The comma is. Um, let's see. I want to 
ask you guys because I think a few few of the biggest takeaways from the doc was you know Scotty and his contract situation and not just the contract but just the way he grew up and I think that was a revelation for people and um, uh, Michael and just his overall game and talent and how enormous it was was a big revelation. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people remark upon how good looking he was back in those days. Um, but I think for me, um, I just don't understand how what Krauss was trying to do was defensible in any way possible, right? Like, it's impossible to imagine the Celtics running Larry Bird out of town, like, after, as he's winning two straight championships, going into a season and saying, we're done with you and your coach and your second best player, or the Spurs doing that to Timmy, or even the Lakers, when you think about what they did with Kobe when he was literally on his last legs, not coming off of championships, coming off of mediocre seasons, and they extended him for $50 million instead. Instead, they doubled down on Kobe for what he had done for the franchise and where he had lifted them up. I want to ask you guys, because you guys was there, did it not seem preposterous, just the the, the notion that Krauss would want to do something besides what they were doing? Yes. I mean, (laughs) the one word answer to that is, yes, it does seem that way, but you have to go back... uh, to how, it's a word I'm looking for, fraught this relationship was that even back when they were winning, you know, when they won the first repeat, 91, 92, 93, which I did cover the hell out of, that there was always this incredible entangled relationship between, you know, Krauss and Reinsdorf kind of floated above it. And then he would sort of come in and go out, Michael and Scotty, they never quite, you know, connected in a way that you would think championship teams would connect uh, with with the administration. And what really happened was, you know, it is hard to overstate. I'm sure Melissa knows this: the close relationship between Kraus and Phil when it started. I mean, Doug Collins had looked like, hey, this now we, you know, we beat the, uh, we got to the Eastern Conference Finals. Next step, we're going to beat the Pistons. Next thing you know, he's fired. And, you know, the fact that Phil was so close with Jerry in the early days is why he got the job. And then that relationship really began to fray. So by the time you got to 1998, it seems, in your word, preposterous this would happen. Yet the roots of this uh, breakup were starting to happen even back, you know, 91, 92, 93, as strange as it seems. Yeah, I I agree for sure. I mean, it was, you know, by that time, I think everyone wanted out. You know, that was kind of the point. At the same time, they knew that, you know, Jerry, Jerry said many times, you know, like, and, and later on that they were aging, you know, they weren't the team they were naturally, they were older, but could they have won again? Like, of course, you know, certainly they could have contended. Um, but yeah, Jack is, is right on. I mean, you know, the famous line that Jerry then tried to pull back Krause saying organizations win championships, you know, not, uh, not teams. Um, you know, that is exactly what he said. And that's exactly what he thought he really did. You know, he thought that he could keep selling out all the guest suites and, uh, forever. And, and he did for a while, but, um, you know, that's cause the leases were still going, you know, when they ran out, then, uh, then that was kind of it. So, yeah, I think it was 
you know, and then they were bound and determined, Phil and company, you know, to get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, it was just, uh, I think when you talk about that fraying of the relationship early, there was one thing, you know, and there was a certain contingent of people here and, you know, and friends of mine who didn't know would say like, geez, you know, Jerry's not around to defend himself, Kraus. You know, they're, they're kind of rough on him, but he really did bring so much on himself. And, and part of it was this feeling that Michael and Phil in particular so bristled against was this, I created you, I discovered you, I brought you here. You know, Scotty, the same thing. Phil, when he got, or Michael, when he got hurt, you know, there was this ownership feeling that he just didn't like. And, the, and Phil, the same way, oh, you were, you know, it was cute at first, the story about how he was a hippie and he came to the interview with the feather in his hat or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, and I was like, you know, it, maybe that was sort of cute at first. And then it, it became tiresome, um, like other things, like him being on the bus, you know, the whole thing. It's like, you know, I'm watching the documentary and, and they're talking about making fun of him and it looks really mean. And in fact, they didn't have the really mean stuff, but I'm, you know, he's on the bus and they're talking about they're yelling stuff from the back of the bus. And I'm like, get off the bus then. I'm actually talking to TV from 30 years ago. You know, I'm like, why were you on the bus? You know what I mean? He said, you know, he put himself in that position in many ways, um, not just being on the bus. I'm being sort of facetious, but, but in creating that incredible, uh, tension and um, resentment to the point where you know, then at the end, absolutely fans were crushed. But I don't know that it was, you know, a, a huge shock, you know, to those of us who had been around. Uh, Missy, I want to follow up on that. Like, that's to me is the, the, the psychological study you could do of, of Jerry Krause, who kind of checks all the boxes, right? I mean, non athlete, short. No, no particular people skills, no great people skills, White. overweight, <laughs> you know, and so far. it's all of the things that, that, you know, that somebody in his position should know are kind of disqualifying when it comes to, you know, be, you know, trying to be one of the guys. You're not one right. of the guys. You're never right. going to be one of the guys. Stop trying right. to be one of the guys, you know? Exactly. And so that's exactly. what I just always wonder, like, why did he feel this need to kind of like always try to be, be around them? They don't want you around them. You should take the hint, you know? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's that, like, I've never been in a fraternity. I know this may surprise some of you, but I think that that, you know, fraternity kind of like there's always one guy maybe that people kind of pick on, but it's usually like funny and they are in on the joke. He was never in on the joke. And, you know, when they walk into the locker room and he's half naked getting a massage by the woman who's going to massage them. And oh. Like, oh. No, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry to create that image, but like. I can't unhear not, that. It's just, yeah, I'm so sorry. It's just not. I think we're breaking news right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think Sam might have written that. I don't know who wrote that first. But, um, yeah, it's just not going to endear you to the fellas. You know what I mean? And it's, um, it, you know, and it sounds so mean the way we're all saying it. Like, oh, he was short and fat. Gee, he's so sorry, you know. But uh, it, he was – and, again, he was not here, so then that's really mean because he's not here. Although I know what he would say. I could hear his voice. Um, he had a few favorites and the rest of people, and he treated people not well. And I'm not just talking mm -hmm. about reporters that rubbed him the wrong way. I mean, mm -hmm. that's fine. You know, that's par for the course. Um, but I, I, yeah, it's just he uh, Johnny Bach was a gentleman of all gentlemen. I think you guys would agree um, and a Marine. So he's seen it all and he's not exactly like erudite. You know what I mean? In that mm -hmm. sense. 
he's seen things. He's he he could barely sit at the same table with Jerry because he found him just tasteless and mm. crude and mm-hmm. and not nice and and mm. so to to regular people quote unquote you know what I mean mm. so um and to reporters in a way that wasn't respectful and so you know I mean I I tried and and uh, and I just it's hard for me to be a hypocrite too now and be like. I did feel bad for him when during the ring ceremonies he got booed. And I mean, he got booed every time. And right. toward the end, you'd also, the same thing on the bus, like maybe don't have the big introduction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just be yeah. there. But he did. Every time he had the big introduction, he'd get booed. And then everybody feel bad because unless you're just evil, you feel bad for a man being booed at a ring ceremony. And so, um, and so we all felt bad, but then you talked to him and then you wouldn't feel bad. So I think he liked you though, Jack, didn't he? Weren't you one of his guys that he kind of liked, which uh, isn't a bad thing. Not really. You should know that in episode three, uh, that Jerry gets, uh, that it's going to make us all feel better for like 30 seconds. There is a moment, um, is this exactly a spoiler alert because it's like 30 seconds, Jerry and Scotty. It's all I'm going to say. Have a moment in episode three that is kind of like you go for anybody who thought, oh, my God, we, we you know, crapped on this guy too much and he's not here. There is a moment of 30 seconds of anybody that uh, when Jerry Krause is at his uh, is at his happiest. But I got to tell you something funny about Krause, though, you know, this peculiar personality. No, he didn't. I mean, I guess I you know what, Melissa, this is this was the advantage always of me versus you. When you swoop into a place and you're not around all the time. Yeah. Like I did. And David, when he got with, you know, the network. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. When you satellite in a little bit, nobody's quite as sick of you. Right. 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 it, It was a true it was a true advantage. But I ran into Jerry at an airport. And Jerry, as Melissa remembers, used to literally dress like a spy. He had a trench coat and this ridiculous Maxwell Smart hat. And I ran into him at an airport and he 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 wouldn't pretend he'd gone, Hey, I'm on a scouting trip, don't tell anybody. I said, Jerry, it's me and you. Do you think anyone recognizes you? In this airport, you know, and he would he would pretend that he would have to hide because people were going to clock where he was going on a uh, scouting trip. So I, you know, I get the when I think of him now, I just, you know, a little bit more more to be pitied than censured. I guess is what I would say about uh, what I would say about Jerry. I, I have a good. Uh, can you hear another paranoid Jerry um, story? Please, please. It's, a, it's so, a podcast. So we got plenty of yeah, time. Yeah. So, well, one is. Um, Bill, do you guys remember? I mean, hopefully, some of your listeners will remember party lines, right? Where well, I'm, I'm old, so yes, of course, I remember so we party lines. <laughs> so it's when more than one family shares i don't even know how that works but whatever i think we all had it where you'd be on the phone all of a sudden you'd be like who's that i can hear you can you hear me you're talking well when phil had his house which you know he still does around the lake in montana um everybody around the lake shared the same line and it was ridiculous he's you know a multimillionaire. phil could have afforded his own private line but he purposely kept it because he knew it annoyed the ever-loving 
you know, bejesus out of Jerry because Jerry would call and be like, Marge from across the lake would be like, hi, Phil. And Jerry would think that Marge is sharing, you know, is stealing like 20 cool coaches. She's going to, you know, go get them, you know. And so he, Jerry, I mean, that was just typical Phil and all of them loved teasing him so much. And it was so easy and it made him crazy. And I remember Phil talking about that a lot and laughing about that. And, and the one other, the one little story with me that stands out, there's so many of him. The one, one of the many times he screamed at me was I had a little teeny note that said he was on a road trip. He wasn't on every road trip and he was somewhere for some reason. And he was in my face because my family is at home and they're alone without me. And you're telling robbers that I'm not at my home. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> you'd beat up the robbers or yeah. you'd be the one to put on the burglar alarm? I was so confused. He was very sincerely very mad at me. And that was part of his – it wasn't really about his family was home and burglars would come. It was obviously – that, you know, God forbid someone would know because he was at a game because he was scouting. And I, I don't know. But that, you know, that was you just it was very hard to take him seriously in those in those cases. So I now sound so mean. No, you sound great, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I, I appreciate the candor because I think that's something that came up with a lot of the commentary coming out of it is that people were like, well, the guy's no longer with us. You know, where I was like, I mean, these people were saying this stuff in real time. It's not like anybody hid how they felt about him in real time. I think they're just sort of <laughs> just saying it again in front of a camera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't, you know, obviously you don't want to speak ill of the dead, right? I mean, we all understand that. Yeah. But, but, you know. Do you want to speak ill of the alive? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, like as Melissa's, now look, I, I had the same relationship that Jack did. You know, I would come in. I'm Bigfoot, and coming in with ESPN. Well, of course, he's going to talk to me. Now, doesn't now he doesn't tell me anything, but he's going to talk to me, and he's going to be cordial and all those things. And so, I I never I never was under any illusions that he liked me. But he had but he had to tolerate me. You know what I mean? <laughs> For a couple of days, anyway, and then I'd be on my merry way. But um, <clears throat> one the the other thing I wanted to to get from you all, I think. Part of the thing that's intriguing to all of us, even those of us who were there and went through it, was that, you know, Michael was willing to sit down and, and really put some stuff on the record, you know, which which he hasn't done for a very long time. And he used to do it back in the old days and when he first got in the league. But obviously things changed as, as the team got more famous and the media attention and the scrutiny and the criticism got bigger. Um but I was just curious from from both of you, like what what it was like to see Michael sitting there answering questions, like being honest about what he actually thought about things, because, he, you know, I know there's no there's no secret, Jack, that he didn't talk to SI and it was nothing you did. It was for a different reason, but he wouldn't talk to you on the record after a while. And that must I'm sure that was not pleasant in those days. And I just wonder what it was like to watch him actually talking. Well, I don't think anyone had as clear a separation <clears throat> between the early part of their career, friendly to the press, and the latter part of their career. I, I wrote that to a certain extent, Magic and Bird, we always end up going Magic, Mary, My, Magic Michael Larry, Magic Michael Larry. They were sort of the same person. Michael was completely different, as Melissa remembers. I mean, he was a kid. He was unbelievable 
to deal with. He was he was great. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that Michael never said anything controversial, political, that is true. But that didn't mean he was a boring personality. You know, he would say stuff. He would say stuff about players. He would yeah. fire up. He, he wasn't at all uninteresting. If you combine that with what he said and how he played, the guy was an interesting guy to write about, whether or not he, you know, commented on the political situation or not. Yeah. But then came the shutoff. And when that came, uh, it was really it was really difficult. Now, I ended up interviewing Michael for the uh, the Dream Team book that I did. And, you know, in order to get that, I had to say this has nothing to do with Sports Illustrated because just a 30 second reminder what happened when Michael went into baseball. We wrote a story. I didn't write it. Steve Wolf wrote it. Great baseball writer. And the story wasn't that bad. It just kind of assessed Michael as a minor league player. But we put on the cover, bag it, Michael. Like, get the F out of baseball. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and Michael took that like, holy crap. Very badly. Never, <laughs> Not well. <laughs> never forgot that. And every time I would see him, you know, would start talking for a while. And then I'd say, when we got back with the wizard, let's say, so what do you think? Are you guys running any form of the triangle? Wait, you ask me this for Sports Illustrated now? <laughs> you know? But when I talked to him for the Dream Team book uh, and he ascertained it didn't have anything to do with Sports Illustrated, he was, you know, his usual unbelievable self. So the last time I had a long contact with him was interviewing him for the Dream Team book several years ago. So it was great. It's great to see him sitting in that big chair, that mm-hmm. glass of brown liquid beside him. I heard so it quickly tequila. disappearing tequila. glass of brown liquid. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it'd be full, sometimes it'd be empty, then it'd be full again. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's, been, it's been great. Uh, and I missed, I did miss, not to sound too fanboy, because we all deal with what we deal with in this business, but I missed the old Michael because, as Melissa knows, he was – he was great to deal with, man. He was he was really, uh, really a pleasure. I agree. I agree. And, and I'm not going to pretend to have, you know, dealt with him later in his career after Chicago. So I didn't see that as much. I saw the transition between great Michael and not accessible Michael when he just was tired, Michael, of of uh, I. I kind of described it as like quote fatigue, you know, he was asked so much about stuff that he didn't care about or really know about politics and stuff that he kind of started meandering around and not making that much sense. And, um, but he was always very, very, you know, willing. I, we loved him and it had nothing to do with being a being fans, you know, how, you know, we have one desire and that's it for media. Be accessible and be a good quote. We're like, love you. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't even matter if you hate us. It's just you're a good quote and you talk to us and we're we're happy. And so he, from that standpoint, never, and you guys will remember this. I mean, he would have the big mobs after the game and he would never dodge. And I mean, he would answer the last question from the smallest paper to the biggest paper to Sports Illustrated. Um he had patience, you know, every single day after practice. Was he there? No, not necessarily, but most. And when he and he had an intuitive sense of when we really, really needed him, when there was a controversy or, you know, just a big game or whatever, he would make sure that he was there for us. Um, he was funny. He was um, 
charming. He could tell great stories. He would tease, you know, Lacey Banks all the time. And that was a different kind of teasing. It was still, um, you know, than Krauss, you know, it was still kind of hard edged and, but Lacey could take it and he would, you know, do that all the time. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't see, you know, that side of him, um, very much at all. I was, I was really lucky that, that we saw the guy who was sitting in that chair seemed like the Michael I knew. He really did. I mean, I, I, it was cool to see him, you know, with this drink and in his house and stuff, but cause we all would have loved to have gotten interviews in his house and, you know, maybe some of you, maybe you guys did, but, uh, at that the same would be a time, no for me. Okay. Well, <laughs> course i just didn't want to brag about it um sitting in his car when he pulled up in his uh lamborghini or whatever it was uh but that didn't mean that we didn't have plenty of time with him i really didn't feel that cheated and we even got one-on-ones with him back in the day and back back in the day you'd go on the road with them and there wouldn't be a whole you know uh entourage if you will media style uh of writers. It would just be the daily beat writers. So Mike Mulligan and Kent McDill and I from the Sun Times and Daily Herald and Tribune, we'd kind of be the only three. So the road guys would come in and, you know, talk to them, do what they had to do and then leave. And we'd just be there just shooting the bull and talking about, you know, changing diapers in the case of him, not, you know, and teasing him about it and, um, and all kinds of stuff in his childhood. And there'd be lots of stories. And I went and talked to him in Birmingham when he was, um, you know, playing baseball and right after that Sports Illustrated cover, I believe. And he was, he was wonderful, you know, and and I think a lot of people visited him, media people, and he was really relaxed and uh, easy to talk to. So that was Michael I knew and still like to think in that way. I got an early couple early condo interviews with Michael. And then the, the, one of the best interviews I had with him was in his car. I would, he came out of practice one day and there was so many people around and he knew I wanted to do a story mm-hmm. and he said, jump into his car. I've told this story before, but it's true. And we started speeding through the Deerfield oh, yeah. <laughs> municipal. Don't ever ride. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Athlete, by the way, <laughs> I mean, because I'm known not for being exactly conservative behind the wheel, but this is a white knuckle journey. And so Michael's tearing through this park and he gets stopped twice. And a kid, uh, a, one kid jumps out and he made a kind of a, a rap tape for Michael. And then, then he gets stopped again and somebody else had designed a sweatsuit for him. And I'm thinking for a journalist, this is gold. When you oh, yeah. show sure. and not sure. tell, you're trying yeah. to figure out <laughs> how do you show what kind of life or what level of fame this guy has? Well, <laughs> he gets stopped. You know, and people are designing stuff for him. And uh, whenever you hung around the early uh, Michael uh, and to an extent, whenever you could get to the late Michael, this is what you know, this is what you found. Your story just wrote your wrote itself because I just remember Barkley talking about this later on. And Char and I would say to Charles, why couldn't you help Michael a little bit? you know, how you used to go out in Barcelona during the Olympics and you were able to fend your way through the crowd and you were able to be a Pied Piper and stop once in a while, yet keep on going. Charles went, no. What happens to me when I go out is nothing. 
like what happens to Jordan. He's right. He said, <laughs> He's well, he had to close down malls. and yeah. literally, There's just yeah. no comparison of how that guy uh, had to live. I, I guess, you know, somewhere, somewhere there's, I don't know, that happened to McCartney after. I, I don't know. But Charles set me straight on that. I mean, I saw evidences of it myself. But Charles said there was nothing like what Jordan had to deal with when he went out. It was like if you were ever in, the, in a in a club with Michael or in a bar, or restaurant, it was like a black hole developed, yeah. and all of the energy in the building and in the room all went to him. All of it, all of it. You know, the line of people, the energy, the looks, that everybody's head turned in the same direction, the buzz, the noise, all of it. It was unbelievable. It was. He's absolutely right. I've been in a lot of blo- a lot of bars and a lot of clubs with a lot of NBA players, and there's nothing like being in the spot with Michael Jordan. There was nothing like it ever before or since. And the cool thing is, Sam used to once in a while say, like, and maybe it wasn't Sam. I shouldn't blame Sam because um, it's going to sound like unrealistic. But I know some people would say, oh, really? Like, you know, him shutting down the movie theater because he wanted to see a movie. Like, did he really need to? Like, he couldn't just go in and be a normal person. And the fact (laughs) is, no, but he really couldn't uh, from everything David said. But also, he absorbed it so unbelievably well. Like, most people would be self-conscious or weird about it or not. Like, not that he enjoyed it necessarily, but he was able to live, you know, that part, you know, in such a way that was just, um, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, no one played the part of superstar as well. I think, I guess that's the way I'm looking at it. You know, and he had all the security guys around him. So it looked like the original entourage kind of like get away from me. And it, and it was to a degree, but those guys were his family. You know, those guys were all like older men, like his dad. And he just really enjoyed having them around him and so I never sense any of them were going to like beat up anybody who came near them or anything. I mean, maybe they would have, I guess, but cause they were ex cops. I mean, there's some, you know, some of them were ex Chicago cops, so they certainly could have. Um, but he just, he just wore that, that suit of, of uh, superstars, not like big enough, like David said, wherever he went, uh, very comfortably, very, very comfortably. And, um, whether it was putting him, self above everybody else. Yes, that was part of it. Um, but also he was, you know, he could be gracious too, but we all wondered when he left the game, could he, you know, could he live without people cheering him? You know, could he, could he like go to the mailbox without applause and like be able to survive? Um, and I, I think there was some truth to that. I think he really, really liked it. Not the cheers, but the whole thing, you know, I think he got used to it and, just that uh, was just part of his life. And I bet that was hard for him. Not necessarily an ego thing, but I bet it was just hard living that. But he hasn't really left it because he's still he's still like that. This sucking up the oxygen that Michael used to do, you know, it's so uh, when I went out to do the Dream Team book, coincidentally, the first person I interviewed was Pippin. It just kind of worked out that way. And this was 2010 or 2009 or something like that. And I thought to myself, you know, and I said to Scotty, I've been covering you, you know, like 10 years off and on, 11 years back in the day. I never really knew Scotty. And that's partly my fault. I would I remember going out to Chicago with the Express 
uh, idea of doing a story on Scotty. Let's do something else. Mm -hmm. Then you'd get out there. Michael, well, he went for 51 <laughs> and 45. And right. Jesse Jackson was talking to him at the locker and Kid and Play was hanging around. Right. And, oh, yeah, the president called. Right. And it would turn into another. And to a certain extent, when I looked at the documentary, the first two episodes, I, I had that thought, too, that these guys were kind of – look, Melissa knew this stuff. You know, she knew Hamburg, Arkansas, and stuff like that. And I knew it sketchingly and the idea that he started out as an equipment manager and had to get the scholarship. But really to really sit down and talk to Scotty, um, it made me feel almost guilty when I was doing the interview for the book because I had missed so many opportunities mm -hmm. because I was so <laughs> – so concentrating on Michael, and it's like nobody ever said, oh, give us less Jordan and more Pippen. You know, that didn't really happen, and I'm really glad, uh, asking my impressions of the first two documentaries, I would say I was really glad that Scotty, no matter how much once in a while he came across as a lost soul, you know, with his contract and everything, but I was really glad it devoted that much attention to him because, uh, boy, being around Michael all that time, uh, that you get used to being a second-class citizen more than anybody I can think of. And if it makes you feel any better, Jack, I mean, it was very hard to get him to open up in any way back then. You know, he was he was shy, and he was a small-town kid, and he was um, aware of his place on the team, his role on the team. And, you know, Oakley, it showed that little bit with him sort of um, – you know, not bullying him, teasing him and, and you know, putting him it in his looked, place a little bit. legitimately like Oakley would punch him. <laughs> oh, yeah, he could have, right. So, yeah, that's how he was brought up. He was not, you know, on Michael's level in any way. And so he and Horace were, you know, Horace was yelled at more by Phil than, than Scotty was. But Scotty was still, you know, still the, the second banana. and he And he was okay with that. And he certainly was not going to tell you, every detail about his growing up. I mean, you really had to get that from other sources. I mean, Sam got, you know, a lot of good stuff, but from other people. And, um, and we knew, we knew he was very poor and we knew he was supporting his family. I knew that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you hear about two, his father and a brother being in a wheelchair. I mean, that's just rough stuff. And, uh, and then to come out of it and to, and boy, you see him today. Doesn't he look great? I mean, it's nothing to do with yeah. grew up, but he looks so great. I think he's, he always does. I mean, when you see him on the jump and everything else, um, and he's so well-spoken, he always was, he just was very shy. You know, I want to ask you guys about, uh, cause you bring up Scotty and, um, you mentioned, you know, uh, all the gravity that, that Michael attracted, just that he was just this, you know, force of nature, um, and I think in the previews that ESPN released, and you saw some of it in the first two episodes of Michael interacting with his teammates at practice. You know, of course, he has this reputation of being a hard ass and he was a jerk to everybody because he didn't care about anything but winning. And so what? He would crush you if you didn't, you know, live up to the expectations. And, you know, people kind of lift him up for those characteristics. Um, did you guys get a sense that his teammates liked him? Not always, you know, no. I mean, when you get punched in the face, you're probably not going to like him that much. Mm. And Steve Kerr was never anybody's 
you know, punching bag. Um, you know, he looked like that, you know, like the nice next door neighbor kid that he always, he still does, but, uh, no, he didn't take that well at all. And, you know, he wasn't a rookie. And so, you know, when he gets punched in practice, he, they had to hold him back, you know, it wasn't like he was so, but he came to understand him certainly. And you saw clips of Michael coaching in practice and, you know, Will Purdue got, you know, bullied and Stacy got bullied. Bill Cartwright certainly wouldn't take it. Um, you know, the others may have hated him secretly at times. I'm sure they did, but in, in general, everybody eventually came around to understanding the methods of his madness, you know, that he, uh, was trying to get them stronger so that they would be stronger in games. If you played and practiced that hard, that you'd be, that would be your, um, you know, your muscle memory, so to speak in, in games. And so, and there's no mistaking when someone works that hard and wants to win that badly, it's kind of hard to resent them for it. You know, when you're all professional athletes and you're all trying to, trying to win and succeed and get bigger contracts and everything else. I mean, a lot of people got more money because of Michael, maybe not rich, but a lot of people made money from, you know, his success. So I don't see too much resentment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a moment and Michael stayed just inside, just inside of being a complete (laughs) (laughs) a-hole. He put his arm around Purdue, you know, with Cartwright, as Melissa knows, was a little different. Him and Bill, because Bill was a very smart, mm-hmm. veteran, thoughtful guy, and he wasn't buying. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. But, you know, there's a great moment in the first, uh, either episode one or two, when they ask Steve Kerr, who's, you know, never at a loss for words, Steve, what makes this team special or something? And Steve hems and haws for about 10 seconds, and he goes, uh, well, we have Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And, and that, to me, was sort of the topical sentence, the topic sentence of the whole thing. Well, this is why we're here. And uh, we understand that if Michael's on our team, we're probably going to win a championship. Right. <laughs> right. And, right. And that is sort of the, you know, the bottom line of it. That part really cracked me up when Steve just – that's why we're special. You know, I mean, it, it, I suppose Rodman's, uh, you know, escapades, which come to fore a little bit in upcoming episodes, uh, are part of it. But you always got back to Michael. I like that word, escapade. Yeah. <laughs> see, I, see, That's I, a perfect word. I have to, I mean, look, I think, again, people, if you weren't, if you didn't follow the, I mean, if you weren't there back then, and this is not, you know, old man telling stories, it's just that the game was so completely different. Because the rules were so completely different, right? And there was just so much more physicality that was part of that game, part of the game at the time. You know, you had to be kind of an asshole to get through that gauntlet. <laughs> you know, I mean, you yeah. could, it wasn't for nice guys. You couldn't beat Magic. Magic was an asshole to his teammates, okay? Larry Bird was an asshole to his teammates. Isaiah was an asshole to his teammates because they had to be to beat the other guys. That's how good they all were, you know? So, right. so to me, I mean, again, as great as Michael was, it took him seven years. To beat yeah. those guys, finally, you know, because right. they beat him up and beat him, you know, figuratively and literally for seven years until he, he had guys that were tough enough and good enough to play alongside him and beat those guys. So that's 
it's not that to me, it's like, yeah, he was a jerk, but you had to be a jerk to win back then. You know, you're not even, you're not even talking about Barkley and, and Stockton and Malone and Patrick Ewing and all those other teams that you had to beat. I mean, yeah, you, I mean I, I, beat I, Beard, you know, and then, and then you go and will Purdue is like, you know, not playing tough D maybe. And, and yeah, you want to kill him because you know, Lambeer's going to eat your lunch. So yeah. To me, to me, the ends justify the means, but I think about, you know, in present day, the guys that have a bad get got a bad rep amongst their teammates. I think it's somebody like Kyrie, where it's like his teammates are like, "All right, let's let you handle your business and lead us to what right, <laughs> right. forty eight wins." <laughs> like, it's, it's, you know, it's like it's, it's different. It's different when you don't produce. I, I think yeah. ultimately, what matters is whether you win or not. And I know that doesn't sound like nuance or. Or it's how some people might want to want to view things, but like if when you produce, when you are the reason why your team is advancing year in and year out, you know all that other stuff can fall by the wayside. Like, sure, nobody should get punched in the face at work <laughs> unless right. you're like a boxer, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah. we all but, understand yeah. that. But if right. you're winning, like, what what can you really say? Well, what right. David said about the game being different, you know. Uh, that's one of the th- my takeaways from here. There's so many shots of them, uh, like at having these battles. Some of them were in the preseason, but at practice, the idea I'm getting in. I don't want to do an Iverson imitation here, but teams used to actually practice. They were eating, <laughs> right they hard, were <laughs> crap out of each other in January and February, and it forged <laughs> a different kind of feeling now. And I'm not one of these. Oh, it's such a easy game now. But it's different. Teams do not practice. They don't go at each other all the time like these guys did. And it just goes back to what, you know, David was saying. It's such a different game. And I hope some of the people, when they look at the, you know, this thing, that's one of the things you're seeing. You're seeing on film what a different physical game, the way it was coached the way it was played, the way teammates interacted. And I and I found that really fascinating. I didn't know I was going to get that out of it going into the documentary, but that's been one of the great things for me about the doc. And also, do you remember the scene where Michael comes in and I think it was like the day after a championship and he came into the Burrow Center and he just stood in one place. It was maybe 18 feet at most. And he was just shooting jumper after jumper. It was like, and that, I don't think people realize and this is, you know, superstars, uh, you know, since the dawn of time, don't get credit for being as hard workers as they are because they're so talented. Um, and he had that work ethic. And it's, you know, it's one other, one more thing that Kobe, I think also young fans of Kobe don't realize all the things that he appreciated in Michael. And that was work ethic. Beating up people in practice was work ethic. That was you know, standing there the day after a game, like no one talked about it. Cause of course he did that. Of course, Michael was back next morning shooting 10 million, you know, free throws. I mean, that's just what he did. That's just what they did. And, and maybe the good ones, I would assume do it, but obviously Kobe got so much credit for being, for having that mentality that, um, you wonder, uh, you guys would know, cause you covered it more recently, obviously, I guess they don't, you know, I guess they, they don't as much anymore. Well, they work individually, I think. There's yeah. the guys work very hard individually. I just don't know 
but the, but to Jack's point, I mean, the, there just the is no practice. There is no practice anymore because they're trying to preserve guys. And I get it. It's it's yeah. it makes sense to preserve this, their legs and their, you know you only have so many jumps right before it, your career is over. So they're trying to limit that and all those things. And you and you have low management. All these things make sense. By the way, I don't think nope. I'm not at all you know, pining for the old days where they played 82 every year. I get it. You need to give these guys, if you can give these guys more days off, you should. All I'm saying is that back then, that didn't happen. Right. <laughs> that, <laughs> that didn't happen, you know, and it wasn't going to happen for, for a guy that was going to be considered, you know, a championship level contender. God, you putting off the surgery. I'm sorry. Like that probably would happen a lot now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, that's, that's how right. Kyrie right. threatened the Cavs into right. trading him. Right. He told right. them that he would take this elective surgery if they kept him on the team right. and that he would be out for the season. He literally used that as a means to get the hell out of Cleveland when he got traded. Like, the exact same thing Scotty um well Scotty did it differently but yeah that's Kyrie did that and you know what I wanted to say was all these parallels you guys are making I think about the Clippers who's the team that I'm around the most and I wish Missy that I could um clip your um what you said about Michael and presented to Kawhi Leonard about you know, talking to every media person and acting like it's not like not acting like he's getting his teeth pulled anytime he has to answer literally the easiest questions after he drops 40 in a game that he won. Um, and, you know, Doc Rivers, who just completely hates practice like he hates it. I think somebody tweaked an ankle in practice one time during the season and then um, the coach availability, he was like, see, that's why I hate practice. <laughs> right? Like they hate practice and they hate media. It's, it's both. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of that's, that's the different part. That's not good as well about today um, is, you know, they, you, they, they used to need the media was, and they don't need us anymore. Right. You know, that's right. the difference is that, you know, they can go on players yeah. tribune and say whatever they want. And you know, that's okay yeah. too, but that's just the, yeah. that's the, difference you know as great as big as michael was he still needed to talk to mccallum you know what i mean like that that yep, was part yep. of our charge and he still needed to talk to me you know at espn so um that's um that's what was different back then but look uh, it, we could go for three hours on this stuff um i wanted to hear from each of you like is there something that you are you want to see covered in the next i guess there's eight episodes left um, 10 and 10 and all 10 in total. Is there something that you hope that they cover that they get to in the next eight episodes of this uh, documentary? Well, I'm cheating a little bit because I've seen a lot of them <laughs> only because I, you know, I got an advanced thing simply be, you know, they sent it. If you were trying to write, pretend you're writing on deadline, but you can have it done on Saturday morning. <laughs> so yeah, I tell you what, uh, you know, it it is uh, it is pretty complete. It is pretty complete. And I have not seen I have not seen all of it by any means. Uh, I guess there's a little bit of a. Uh, a herky jerky effect. There's there's a uh, thing about Phil and his uh, boyhood, you know, his boyhood growing up in Montana and uh, the way he grew up with the religious parents and everything like that, that. You start going off on the side tangents a little bit, and then they jerk back and come back to, you know, the central story of 97, 98, which I get. But there are a couple strands of interesting people that I could say, uh, you know, maybe should be expanded a little bit. But they have a thesis. 
that it's a 97-98 season. We got to get back to that. And uh, all in all, from what I've seen, uh, you know, I really think it's a really uh, remarkable job. I, excuse me, I didn't see uh, any of it. So everybody is a surprise to me. And I want to see every bit of that lost film from practices. I don't feel like I saw enough. Or, or I don't even remember what it was, but I want to see that because we were not allowed. Let me make that clear. We, we saw them shooting free throws and then they would close the curtain. We never saw those scrimmages. So we'd see them coming out all bloody and mad and, you know, and all that stuff all the time. But we did not get to watch them scrimmage. And that is going to be fascinating for me. I will not be able to get enough of that. And um, I want to see if, you know, behind the scenes with Rodman, too, which I assume we'll see how they interacted with them. I and mean, here's a guy who I think was 40 or 43 suspensions um, or games lost due to suspension in two seasons. Um, I think I got that right. You know, and I always felt like, what? How are they like putting up with that crap? Like I didn't really see, and I wasn't covering the team as, as uh, the beat writer then, I should point out. So I didn't see them every single day. But I I would like to see the behind the scenes of how they interacted with them. I know that they treated him with kid gloves in many ways because they knew what they had to get out of him. And they genuinely liked him in some ways. And then in other ways, though, I know from hearing secondhand from them during the time that they did put him in his place. I would like to see some of that. And so I'm looking forward to more Rodman for sure. Oh, you will see more Rodman. (laughs) (laughs) And and even after seeing more Rodman, uh, I'm not sure you completely understand it. And he's one of those players that uh, I just was never really able to gauge. I know Dridge is on there the first couple episodes saying he's the best on ball defender that he that he's ever seen and i remember when when dennis was a hall of fame candidate i kind of wrote that uh he didn't deserve it and i sort of missed the boat on that i i think i was probably wrong i was looking at his stats and saying well at the same time dennis is getting 14 rebounds a game charles is getting 12 rebounds a game and he's scoring 22 points whereas dennis is scoring six points well this episode, these make you think about Rodman as a player and what exactly, uh, you know, Scotty's thought of as the ultimate Michael sidekick, which he is. But during these three years, uh, what Rodman brought uh, to the team is very, very, very interesting. And and Melissa, you will get uh, what you wanted in the episodes uh, coming up. <laughs> yeah, I, Rodman to me, like I, I, Rodman in Chicago was 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 terrific. But I, I, when I think of him as a defensive player, I'm thinking of the De- Detroit Rodman, where I just yeah. think he was a a force of nature that I had never seen before in the NBA, in, in terms of his ability to just guard everybody and to completely get guys out of their game. I just n- never seen anybody that could do that. You know, as great as Michael was, as and, and he was a he was a great defensive player for a while, and then he was kind of coasting on his reputation. But you know, early Michael was a terrific defensive player. Scotty was a great defensive player the whole time. But I never saw anybody disrupt a team the way Rodman disrupted teams. Just, just unbelievably in Detroit, especially. I mean, and just like. I, I don't think people who, you know, younger people, younger fans 
I, I've heard many people say it, and I, and I think I would say the same thing. You'd pay to see Robin just run up and down the court, wouldn't you? I mean, yep. the way he, <laughs> yep. he he was so graceful, the way he would just prance, you know, yeah. and, and it's, I think, a, I can't think of a different word to use other than just prancing. Melissa, I just wrote beautiful down in my blog. Did I just you? wrote prance. <laughs> he probably would like to, prance, but maybe. He straight up. This straight up way of walking, like, oh yeah, uh huh. <laughs> right. He was he was amazing. He was amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's just amazing defensive player. Um, yeah. um, so, uh, you know, I'm just I, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the rest of this. Not not just because I want people to understand how good this team was, <laughs> how good they were. Like they were really good. Like I would not, you know. I would not, you know, denigrate or castigate or disparage anybody who's playing now, but whew, this was a good team, man. <laughs> they were really good, and they were really hard to beat. And I saw everybody take their best shot for a decade, and nobody beat them for a decade when they had all their guys with them, you know, <laughs> when they were all – other than Orlando beating Jordan after 18 months off. That's the only team that beat yeah. them, you know. Um, so that to me, I just want people to understand how – Orlando great- and Jerry Krause. Right, 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 right. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, although I always thought that, that, that you know, Reinsdorf kept Krause around just to be the guy to take all the, the arrows. You know what yeah, I mean? Sure. I think that was part of his job description was, for sure. you know, I mean, Reinsdorf's the guy that's making the decision about these contracts. And if he says – he says no, but Krause is the guy who has to say no. You know what I mean? Oh, so, and nobody was more loyal. Right. Yeah. But, you know, anyway. Anyway, it's – I, I can't thank you all enough for coming. This is this has been great. Like I said, we could do a, another hour on this easily, uh, but Melissa's got to go teach her class at Northwestern. <laughs> She's got all kinds of things going on. I mean, the the book again is called State. It's a great book, a team, a triumph, a transformation uh, by Melissa Isaacson about the West Niles West High School and its run to the state championship and all of the. Uh, incredible uh, journeys that those young women on that team made uh, both on and off the court. Uh, Jack McCallum, the legendary, legendary sports illustrated writer. um, One of the, one of the real good guys in the business. He's written so many books, but I will just say this of all the books he's written. If you can only buy one book, I would buy seven seconds or less and not even think about it twice. (laughs) It's one of the best books I've ever read. Period. Uh, and I mean sports, no, not sports, anything. It's just an incredible book about a group of people. <laughs> and you would do yourself well to go get it and read it because it's just it's just great reporting and great writing and great everything. And so, Jack, I thank you for your time as well, man. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of this uh, series and enjoy, you know, as best we can, kind of hanging out without thank the sports. Thank you, David. Thanks miss you, David. Hey. I miss you. Uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I miss you guys too. <laughs> miss you guys too. Um, and uh, but we'll be back. You know, we'll we'll see each other again soon. And um, uh, we will have another episode of Hoops Adjacent next week as well. Uh, keep in mind at the Athletic, we are in still in the midst of this ninety day free trial. So if you haven't signed up yet for a subscription, you can now. You can look at all this stuff for three months, and then decide uh, what you want to do. But I think it'll be worth it. And uh, we'll see you next week. Later. Welcome to Who Comic is Adjacent.
never end up.